president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, the author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. The professor is going to join us for some quick commentary on the markets. I should note that I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of seven investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We have a really great show today in the studio. Join with me is Nir Kesar, uh, the founder and portfolio manager for Unison Advisors. Nir, thanks for coming down to Philadelphia, joining us here in the Wharton studio. My pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, we're going to have the full hour with Nir. Second part of the program, we talk with Ben Carlson, who's coming back on the program about a new book that he has written. Uh, but before we turn the conversation to Nir, Professor, just getting some, some quick commentary from you on the marks. We had a, an employment report. We have some activity this week. Uh, maybe you could just give us give us your thoughts on, on what's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden, everything's happening. Uh, you know, the uh, missile strike by Trump, of course, sent the S&P down and quickly recovered. I, I think that's actually a net plus for Trump. A um, uh, little bit of unpredictability, uh, and certainly contrast with the weakness of, of, of Obama over eight years, who, you know, uh, said, you know, the, no one's going to use chemical weapons. We'll, we'll go and cross, uh, cross that. So I think he's going to get some support on that, which I think is one reason why the market has really recovered. The employment report was honestly not, not good. I mean, not only did payrolls fall in half and prior revisions go down, um, what disturbed me a bit was of the unemployment rate 4.5%. I mean, now that's, that's way below what the natural rate is for the Fed. They're going to look at that, and they're going to interpret that as indicating tight labor markets. Now, the truth of the matter is hourly earnings are only up two-tenths, which was expected. So, again, we keep on seeing that unemployment rate go down but not see an acceleration in the earnings, which is sort of the conundrum about how far does it have to run. Uh, participation rate stayed at 60, you know, 3 um, percent did not rise from you know where we are before and we had the u6 go down 4.5 i think we got if i my memory down to 4.4 in the last cycle so there's going to be a few hawks and, and, and we also have jeff lacker resigning from richmond not not a real big deal uh, he's not a voting member right now um the one thing and i'll end on this is that this somewhat explains how we can get a 1% GDP number for this first quarter, because with the, you know, the hot numbers we had for January and February, we would have had huge negative productivity. Even as it is, we're going to have bad productivity, but it shows we weren't hiring as many as we thought. So as a result of that, the productivity is not going to look quite as bad when we see that 0.8% print. By the way, second quarter looks strong, three and a half buildup of inventories, and then two next uh, time after that. So that's what's buffeting the market. Yeah. So we're we're seeing the interest rates continue to to get a little bit under pressure on on that news. Um, that's one of the other things. A little bit less competition from bonds. Um, any any other thoughts about you know we see Trump is meeting with China that's a big focal point for for this year that the politics dynamics there any any thoughts on on the China interaction uh, I mean I think he's learning his job slowly but surely <laughs> let us all hope so the market is still holding out that hope sure near any any quick questions for the professor while we uh, while we have him no, that that was uh, that was a great rundown of the uh, of the markets, Professor Siegel. Enjoyed your comments. No, thank you very very much. Hi, right, Professor. Thanks uh, thanks for joining us. We'll talk, talk to you next week. Thank you. 
Uh, so Nir, um, you know, now we got we got past this uh, market commentary here. Why don't we just sort of take a step back? Uh, let's talk about yourself, your background. Um, so Unison Advisors, uh, give us a, a little bit of introduction when you got started uh, running, you know, running your own firm. Well, I I came to uh, to finance sort of in a uh, roundabout way. I started out um, in accounting. Um, with some, some finance exposure, mostly accounting. And I went to work. My first job out of college was at Ernst & Young as an auditor. And I realized counting beans was not for me. And so I worked in their consulting group. Um, and it was interesting because uh, at the time, this was back in the late 90s, there was a lot of M&A activity going on. And uh, there, there, was, there was more work than can be, could be had in the middle market just by the, the traditional investment banks. So a lot of that work was coming to the consultants. And so I was tasked with doing valuations of mid-market healthcare companies. Hmm. And that, that informs what I do now. I'll come to that. But I, uh, after that, I went to law school at Michigan. Um, I worked on Wall Street as a lawyer for a few years. And then I decided to, uh, to start a portfolio management company back in 2005. Um, and running, doing what I do now, which is multi-asset investing. Very interesting. So yeah, Wisdom Tree got our starting about a year after you. We launched the firm or launched our first set of strategies back in 2006. So they were getting funding maybe a little bit before you launched there. Um, right. But 2005, you were really one of the first multi-asset investment managers. Um, maybe talk a little bit about you know, that category of investing groups, how you see it from when you first started in the industry and, and where you've seen it progress over the last 10 years. Yeah, I think it's an interesting space because when I started, um, this idea of multi-asset had not come into the popular imagination yet. Now, to some extent, every you know, asset allocation is as old as time, right? Don't yeah. put all your eggs in one basket. But investment managers were still at that time thinking about portfolios as portfolios of individual securities, not portfolios as underlying indexes or underlying funds and so on. And this idea that a portfolio manager would effectively specialize in putting together funds or indexes mm. was anathema to a lot of the, the industry. I, I, was, I was all but heckled when I, made, when, I made talk, when I gave talks about this subject in the mid-aughts. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, 10 years later, it's, I think, you know, I, I don't have any data on this, but I want to say it's, it's become the majority approach. Um, certainly, it's widely accepted that a portfolio could be made up of underlying funds and indexes. Nobody bats an eye at that now. And so Unison Advisors, you're really a one-man band, right? You are, in some ways, uh, you're, you're accomplishing a lot by, by yourself in a lot of ways, which is, and, and where you've come from where you were back 10 years ago is really one of the more impressive stories I've, I've come across. Thank you. Um, so, so talk a little bit about your growth trajectory, how that's happened. So today you manage or oversee approximately- 1.2 billion. $1.2 billion, which is, which is really, really incredible. So talk about Thanks. how you've grown over the years and, and what you think has, has led to, to your success there. Well, I'm sure most of it is luck. I should say that right out of the gate. But it's been an interesting journey because when I started, my, what I wanted to do, I felt very strongly that there was a big difference um, in the portfolios that, you know, the very uh, the ultra high net worth clients of the big banks were getting and what everybody else was getting and i certainly am not alone there i mean you know the the, the explosion of the robo advisors um you know i'm sure to, to, to a great extent the low cost etf you know all of that was really born out of that same sentiment yeah. so i'm certainly not alone there um but the reason i mention it is because i wanted to, to reach the individuals but it happens that over the last 10 years my clients have predominantly been institutions. Um, the vast majority of the assets I manage are for institutional investors. And institutions just you know, bring to the table bring bigger uh, mandates to manage, and that's really where the growth has come from. So, I mean, so what, how do you think you you cracked into that institutional market? It's just so you, one of the places you you're, you can find Nears writing to you write at Bloomberg Gadfly. You get a big audience there, um, but maybe how 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 did your strategies just become more known in the marketplace? Would you say? Well, I think there's two factors. One is um, I I take a view on asset allocation that certainly was not in the mainstream when I started, although I think it's gained acceptance. And that is, you know, rather than putting portfolios together based on what I would consider the majority approach, which is, you know, traditional 
optimized portfolios that are static, that are buy and hold and so on. I believe that you can add value to a portfolio by using quantitative strategies for asset allocation, primarily valuation and momentum. Those aren't my, the, the, the valuation and momentum obviously are, are as old as time. Um, I was just, I happen to be very influenced by a lot of the academic work around that, that came out in the 1990s when I happened to be in school and when I was first coming out of school, which is why I sort of clung to that. But I, I looked at asset allocation and said, can we use those? If, 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 those, are, if that, those are useful points of information, can we use them in making asset allocation decisions? And I think some institutional investors just wanted something different in their portfolio. And, um, and that's, that's where I think most of, most of my mandates have come from. So we're talking to Nir Kesar, who's the founder, managing member of Unison Advisors, about his investment approach, doing this dynamic asset allocation, value, momentum, interesting. So let's talk about when you come up against competing portfolios in this multi-asset framework, where would you say most people's multi-asset benchmarks are? So you talked about the static buy and hold. Let's talk about what you think those portfolios look like, some of the pitfalls of what people traditionally do. I mean, I look at a lot of what you know, even in, in portfolios that we, we come up against or, or see discussed a lot, U.S. investors, 70%, 80%, U.S. equities, some bonds. Talk about that. Is that a good baseline for what people should do? And then, and then how do you think about building the, the neutral that you're going to tilt around against? Well, certainly, the, I mean, you know, there's a, there's, there's serious home bias in U.S. Yeah. portfolios. Um, there's a recent study actually that showed there's, there's home bias everywhere. Everyone thinks yeah. that investing in their own country is the best thing in the world, which obviously is probably not a good idea. But that's one of the pitfalls. Although one of the things I should say is I actually believe that um, this explosion that we've seen in recent years in, in, in different ways of thinking about asset allocation, and you know, I would put global macro in there, I'd put risk parity in there, I'd put traditional buy and hold in there, I certainly would put valuation momentum in there, I think what that points to is not necessarily that one is better than another, but that there's an argument for having a diversified set of strategies in a single portfolio. So I actually, if you think about the world, uh, you know, 30 years ago as having been made up of a single asset, basically, or maybe two assets, U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds, and then we graduated to multi-asset, now generally people are comfortable with having, you know, global bond exposure, global stock exposure, and so on. So we move from, from a single asset to a multi-asset. I actually think that the next phase of all this, it's not here yet, but here's my prediction. Mm -hmm. In 10 years from now, we're going to be talking about portfolios as multi-strategy. Because I think we're going to look at the different ways that people are thinking about asset allocation and saying, wait, they complement each other. They don't necessarily um, uh, have to be one, one better than the other. They just act differently in different environments. And so there's an argument for putting them all in the portfolio. Well, so let's drill into that. What do you mean by, by multi-strategy? So, you know, I could, like I said, I, you know, I could name several multi-asset allocation, let's call them, strategies that I think are, are that have a lot of um, sense. I think risk parity is, mm -hmm. is, is interesting and, and makes sense. Um, certainly, I think traditional optimized portfolios make sense. Um, we'll, we, you know, we can get back to the pitfalls, which was your original question. Yeah. Um, I think that global macro can make sense. I'm a little less comfortable with global macro personally, but that's a personal bias because I think a lot of the global macro strategies entail making future predictions, mm. whereas I think that's that can be slippery. Um, I think that, you know, using valuation signals to inform your asset allocation uh, strategy can be useful and momentum the same way, or some people would refer to it as trend following, although yeah. th there are differences between the two. So that's what I mean. I mean, having yeah. a portfolio that takes a diverse view of how to put together assets. Interesting. So maybe if, if you don't mind drilling into where you are positioned through, through you know, you, you talked about being more tactical, right? So a lot of people are buy and hold. They have their allocation set and forget it. They don't want to change it that much. Would you talk about where are you positioned today? Like what, as you think about your value and momentum factors for dynamically allocating, where is that pointing you to today and where is it pointing you away from today? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I, it's an interesting environment, I think, because in my opinion, based on, based on the, the work that I've done, I think it's hard to find an environment where there are such stark valuation gaps in various places around the world. And I think the fault line, and I think this is generally appreciated, the fault line is really between the U.S. and the rest of the world. I mean, if you think about, if you think about the world in terms of capes, let's just say, you know, because that's, I think, something that that's generally understood, or should I explain that? We've had the CAPE discussions on the show. It's good Professor Siegel got off the show at this point in time because he would not be happy on the CAPE discussion. <laughs> he's not a fan. <laughs> no. Um, he's written a lot about how he doesn't believe in the U.S. CAPE ratio as a good 
current indicator of U.S. valuations. Um, we've had Meb Faber on. We've had Mark Yusko on. We've had a number of people talk about uh, U.S. being very expensive compared to the rest of the world, um, which I would agree at the overall P.E. level, even forget the CAPE, just the current P.E.s. Yes, the U.S. looks expensive. Now, there's this aggregation bias that Siegel points to a lot where you have negative firms wiping out a lot of the earnings. 2009 earnings completely wiped out right. zero from three firms. Bank of, you know, three firms literally wipe out all the S&P earnings, which doesn't exactly make sense. So he likes the the Schiller method, the 10-year smoothing average, but he thinks the earnings numbers are a problem. But yes, yeah, so let's talk about where the U.S. value, I mean, so you think U.S. is ex- expensive compared to other markets. I do. And actually, I think you're bringing up some really interesting subjects. Um, so let me just very briefly, I'll say, which is, um, so CAPE, when I refer to the CAPE, I'm really talking about the smoothing of the trailing earnings. Um, but I but I do think that if you're going to do that, you have to do two, two things, which I think you hinted at, which is, one is, I think you have to exclude the negative earnings from the sample in general because you're going to, the problem you're going to have is at the bottom of the cycle you're going to have a lot of negative earnings and it's going to completely skew your earnings numbers yeah. um, but um, but the other thing I think you have to do is you have to take you have to look at operating earnings uh, in other words you have to you have to exclude all the all the one-time crazy stuff that's gonna that's gonna toss your sample into into weird outcomes um, so but if you if you take just avoiding the cape for a minute if you just take a smooth earnings right uh, number looking back at five seven ten years whatever you want really you'll notice that um, earnings profit margins earnings in general they look cyclically high in the US and they look depressed everywhere else and so there's an inherent assumption there and I think this is where the, the rubber hits the road so to speak the inherent assumption is that the ultimately US earnings are going to normalize to the downside and overseas earnings are going to normalize to the upside and that may or may not happen right. but but I think if that's ultimately what you have to ask yourself I personally believe in cyclicality and I think that ultimately will happen even though we don't know when it'll happen and when that does happen then I think you get valuation expansion in the overseas markets and you have valuation contraction in the US markets you have to because the US markets are priced in earnings that I think are too high and conversely, I think the overseas markets are priced into earnings that are too low. Now, just playing, you know, the opposite side. Well, Please. we get a twenty percent reduction in corporate tax rates if we go from thirty-five to twenty. Um, what happens? And that a is one. Maybe that's a one-time earnings boost, and that gives. But that that alone could get you seven to ten percent earnings growth. I agree. Um, now. There's on the profit margins. A lot of his stuff has come more globally, and they have been at this lower tax rate. So that that that, that part is sort of a, a structural change in where earnings are coming from, more from higher profit margin sectors, from tech sectors, from forms with overseas. That it may not have to necessarily mean revert. That's true too. That's right. And I think I think mean reversion is a big assumption. It's a point of departure assumption. And I think reasonable people can disagree about this. Um, but but that also goes to the to I think back to this idea of multi strategy. Yeah. There there are these point of departure assumptions that I think we don't like to admit that underlie a lot of different strategies. And you want to diversify those those point of departure assumptions. But but I you know I'm a mean reverting I'm a mean revert guy. I mm. I believe that things are cyclical. Um, but I concede for sure that that's a point of departure assumption that p- reasonable people can disagree about. So where where do you think the best uh, if you if you believe in mean reversion? Um, where do you, so is is emerging markets the prime focal point? Is that where you know the last f- ten years has been pretty horrible? Developed world ten years has not been very good for international benchmark. Um, is that two of the places that you would say mean reversion value opportunities? look more attractive? Yeah, I think certainly emerging markets, developed international markets, I'd say emerging markets slightly better value, in my opinion, than developed international markets. They, they, they also has to do with sectors, right? As it always does. It's always about some sector or another beating up the larger yeah. index. You know, financials are cheap in the overseas markets, both emerging and in the developed international markets. Um, so yeah, I think that that's where that's predominantly where the value is. Uh, we're talking with Nir Kesar, who's the founder, managing portfolio manager of Unison Advisors, about his portfolio approach. Um, what do you think about bonds? So, you know, bonds, if we talk about the equity risk premium, stocks versus bonds, and sort of these multi-asset classes, we can make the argument that U.S. stocks are expensive. But I, I would actually, and I know Siegel would, would argue for this, that bonds are actually much more expensive than stocks if we believe in this mean reversion or you believe that you're looking at historical 
equity risk premiums that say, you know, Siegel's long-term data, 6.5% stocks, 3.5% bonds, maybe a 3% equity premium. Today, let's take a 20 PE ratio, 5% earnings yield. We take the bond yield. What's the the real ten year bond yield today? It's got to be close to zero. It's not high. It's it's it's, it's almost zero. Um, I'm just pulling up the ten year tips number. Uh, ten year because the ten year nominal is two thirty six. Ten year tips is okay forty two basis points. So let's take that as right. your your ten year tips real return. So four and a half equity premium. Still stocks versus bonds. Yeah, this is one that's hotly debated, as you know. And uh, the question is. And I've heard many people make the argument, bonds are expensive. I think that that's inarguable, in my opinion. Therefore, are stocks more attractive? Or in other words, should we be buying stocks because we think that bonds are more overvalued than stocks are overvalued? And um, Well, in a multi-asset framework, you have to think about that to some degree, right? Because you're allocating stocks, bonds, and something else, maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the default then is cash, right? If you don't like anything, it's cash. But in a multi-asset framework, I think it really depends on how you think about allocating, right? So you could say, for example, there's most the risk is in stocks. So I'm going to look at stocks first, and then this is the way that I view the world. Is I say, where's the risk in my portfolio? It's in stocks. So I'm going to look at stocks. I'm going to make a judgment about whether they're useful or not. If they're not, it's going to bonds, and then I'll make that determination about bonds. And if I don't like bonds, it's going to cash. And certainly, I'm holding more cash than I have. You know, than I did five years ago, ten years ago, for the reasons you state. But I don't like. I personally do not like the argument that because bonds are overvalued, you should take more risk in the portfolio. And I, I think there's two reasons there. One is if you look at the valuations of stocks, the valuations themselves are very volatile. In other words, you you'd be hard pressed to find any period, multi-decade period, where where valuations in stocks didn't move. But you, we can find very long periods in bonds where where they were very expensive for a long time. I mean, the late 1940s into the 1950s and 1960s, you basically had an interest rate environment like the one we have today. If you use that as a precedent, it's possible that you have interest rates that are low in the U.S. for another 10 years. Look at Japan. Yeah, yeah. And this, right? this goes to Siegel's stocks for long run point, which is that over long periods of time, um, you know, there's never been a 17-year period where stocks had a negative real after inflation return. Bonds have had a 30-year pet stretch where they had negative after inflation return. So stocks obviously look very volatile in the short run. Bonds, very safe in the short run. But long run, potentially, you can get losses in bonds. And we haven't had a you know, 20-year period, really, with stocks negative. Do you think that that could change? Well, but uh, yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But this is, I think, the second point, which is that bonds, the, the risk in bonds is a lot lower even when they're expensive than the risk is in stocks. So there's a real problem there for investors, right? Which um, Which is what behaviorally happens to them once that risk shows up. I mean, it's fine to say, um, you know, I'm going to buy stocks because I don't like bonds. But what happens if, you know, bonds are down 5% and your stock portfolio is down 30%? Are you going to continue to hold your stocks or are you going to go into bonds at that point? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's where I have trouble with that, with that thesis is I'm not sure that, that behaviorally investors can actually execute on a strategy like that. That's why they need advisors uh, like you. <laughs> they, many of them do. Many of them do. Yeah. Um, so where, how would you, if you're applying value and momentum, how would you say you look at value in the bond market? Is that something that you, you know, it, momentum is easy to follow, or you could just plot the trends in right. what are the, you know, are you getting positive, negative returns in that bond market? But would you, would you apply your value model to the, your bond allocations, or is that more of a momentum swing? No, I do. I do look at bonds from a valuation perspective as well. And I, I, I favor a build-up approach. So um, the way I look at bonds is basically looking at the bond and saying, what are effectively the risk premia in the bonds? Right? So you have, you have effectively the, the risk-free rate. You have you know, the nominal, the real risk-free rate. You have, you're going to get paid some sort of term premiums, presumably, for taking interest rate, interest rate risk. You're going, to take, uh, you're going to get a credit premium for your credit risk. And so you want to effectively model those out and say, OK, what are the premiums that I should be getting paid on this bond? And then you look at the current yield. I, I think the current yield is, is, is a pretty good, the current yield to maturity, I think, is a pretty good indication of the expected return. And if you compare those two, you can make a judgment as to whether they're expensive or cheap. The tricky part with bonds, in my opinion, though, is that the ultimately the reward of being right in bonds obviously is a lot lower than the reward in being right in stocks. So I think that you you have to be measured in the kind of bets you take with bonds. 
So is there is that one where you would go? We talked about international being an attractive spot for equities. Um, certainly, you go to, to Europe, you go to Japan, you get lower yields. Uh, right. Now you could hedge your currency and you actually get paid to hedge the currency. So that might bring you back closer to U.S. yields. But what about e emerging market bonds? Is that a place where... You know, you are getting some six, five, six percent yields in some of those sovereign bonds or even corporates. Is that a place you you look for? I don't personally like their yields. I know a lot of people are going there because they're better uh, relative to the developed world, but they're not great relative to the credit to the additional credit risk that you're taking to go into the emerging markets. Um, certainly, I like them as an asset class. I think they belong in a portfolio. Um, but if we're talking in, 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 from a tactical perspective, I don't love I don't love the way that they're priced today. Um, which is which is interesting because look at if you look at the overseas markets in general, what you see is the stocks are cheap and the bonds are not. Um, and so what that's telling you is that you know everyone is scared about mm. the overseas markets, and there's real opportunity if if you're willing to be a liquidity provider in those markets. There's opportunity there. Interesting. So before we have about five six minutes before we get to the second half of the program, where we'll bring Ben into the conversation. Um, why don't we? Or, Talk a little bit about just the trends in your. You mentioned a big part of your your clientele is institutional advice allocations. Maybe sort of talk at a high level the trends you see just institutionally um, in the overall industry. Where where do you see the discussion points taking? You know, the alternative asset class is one I know Ben focuses on a bit, um, and we might talk about that with him. But what are the the major trends you're you're seeing in the industry? I think there's one big trend that very few people are talking about. And that is institutional investors, I think, are starting to get smarter about where their returns come from. In other words, they're not just buying a hedge fund, they're not just buying private equity and so on. They're actually saying, okay, what? where do the expected returns from these things come from? And more importantly, can I buy them more cheaply? Hmm. And I think that, in large part, um, explains, in the institutional space, the explosion of smart beta, in my opinion. Because I think a lot of people are looking at traditional, you know, traditional source, sources of assets that have been expensive, asset classes that have been expensive, and they're saying, wait a second, can I get this exposure somewhere else? Can I get it more cheaply? And increasingly, the answer is yes. And I think it favors, obviously, it does not favor hedge funds. Um, private equity is a separate discussion. But I think it favors this trend of trying to bring a diversified risk premium exposure to market more cheaply. Yeah, I mean, I was I was uh, with one big pension fund this week. They were talking about how their consultant advised them to lower their return expectations. They currently had a, uh, I want to say a seven and three quarters percent return assumption. The consultant suggested seven. They lowered it down to seven forty five um, instead of all the way down <laughs> to seven. Um, but they they they're fighting that lowered return assumption because it'd be painful to adjust in the short run. But that. That you couldn't see if we're if we're expecting lower returns and we're, we know we're paying one to two percent or more in fees, that, right. that's an easy animal to attack. So you think what what inning of that change do you think we're in? Early, I would say second inning. I think these things are just starting to creep into the institutional space. But you know, oftentimes I think the institutional investor leads. I actually don't know in this case that that's true. I actually I could make the argument that the retail investor and the in, and the institutional investor are actually on parallel tracks. Hmm. Um, you know, certainly when you look at the flows to low cost investing in the retail space, I mean the, the retail investors know what's going on. How would you, when you when you're competing on the multi asset like where where do you think that people where are they selling to go for for your allocations? Because it you know most people do these individual stocks and bonds or the individual mandates. Are you competing with the consultants who are managing a, a total portfolio? Like, How do you think people are, are coming towards your, your solutions? You know, that's an interesting question. I don't have real data around that, but my guess is I am competing with the consultants um, because you know, the consultants traditionally have effectively played the role of asset allocators, but not in any sort of meaningful way. They've really been more about picking um, Managers. It's been a manager picking game. Yeah. But that game has come under fire. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. And so now the question is, you know, do do asset allocators who are allocating more cheaply, if you want, right? Both both charging less for their services, but also putting their clients in cheaper underlying low cost index funds, passive funds, and so on. Do they become more attractive? And it's too early to say, but but you know certainly a lot of my institutional mandates have come in the last two or three years. It happens to coincide with this sort of awakening to fees. Hmm. 
Well, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I congratulate you on a lot of, of your success there. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, I should also note that Nears Firm uh, is a is a client of Wisdom Tree, as uh, as well as Ben uh, Carlson uh, at Ritholtz Wholesale Management. They've also been a client. We're going to be talking with Ben uh, coming up after the break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Uh, we're be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, joined in the studio by Nir Kesar, who's the founder of Unison Advisors. This half hour, we'll be joined by Ben Carlson, who's the Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He also writes a blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. Uh, ben, welcome back to the program. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is really a, a good institutional-focused discussion. We had Nir on the on the first segment talking about his clients, very institutionally based. You're out with a, a new book, uh, Organizational Alpha, uh, also focused on the institutional community, which uh, I really enjoyed reading the book. Uh, maybe talk to us, you know, you, you started off talking about why you wrote the book, and you were talking about Swenson's book is one of the few that was out there for the institutional community, but maybe sort of talk through what you were hoping to accomplish for people in your, in your new book? Yeah, I, I thought that the, the Yale model is kind of what everyone in the institutional community aspires to because David Swenson has built this sort of machine at Yale and the returns are just, you know, otherworldly. Um, but he even kind of makes the points throughout the book, and I think a lot of people miss this when they read it, that, you know, it, it takes a lot of resources and skills and access to be able to put together the kind of portfolio that he did. So I was trying to sort of simplify the institutional world for those uh, organizations who didn't really have those resources or skills or access to top managers and couldn't put together something like Swenson could. So I was trying to sort of simplify, you know, ways that investors in the institutional space could add alpha in, in other ways. And my whole line of thinking is that this entire sort of organizational structure that's wrapped around the portfolio is, is something of a potential source of alpha um, in terms of making better decisions and having sort of documented investment plans and a good process in place. So I think these are sort of policy things that a lot of investors sort of gloss over, but I think they can can really add value in the end. So you, you talk a lot about the, the processes in the book of, of what institutions are doing, and you talk a little bit about the consulting community uh, in terms of how people are working with consultants today and then some of the pitfalls of, of the consulting model. Um, maybe you could sort of talk through some of the experiences you've seen where they really went wrong. I, you told a pretty good anecdote of one where, where in your previous life you saw a consultant come make a presentation to you that you didn't really like. But sort of talk about how you're trying to build that into your practice as you know a, a really le- leading Ritholtz's institutional group, what, you know, what, what's the, the worst, and then what are you trying to embody? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's this thing that, um, that, that sort of Charlie Ellis talks about where he says that, that values discovery is a little more important than price discovery. So I think a lot of these, a lot of the consulting firms, and this is, this is kind of wide throughout different aspects of, of the sort of finance industry, they, they come in and they, they try to offer a solution without first understanding what the problem is. And so, so I think, you know, it's like a doctor making a prescription to you before he diagnoses, you know, why you're sick. So, so I think a lot, of, a lot of consultants do this, too, and they come in and they want to sort of impress these people because they know, they know there's a lot of money involved um, in institutional space. And so they, um, they try, to, try to develop, you know, platforms that offer the best access to the best managers, and they, they tout their track records. Um, and a lot of times they, they miss those first few steps where they really get to know the organization, what their needs are what sort of asset allocation they need, you know, what they're investing for in the first place. So, so, so I think a lot of them um, try to make things a little more too complex than they, than they need to be, just because um, a lot of the institutional world has this aura of sophistication where they assume that um, they need to do these complex investment strategies to sort of fit in in that world. So, um, so I think just sort of taking a step back and simplifying things can be helpful for a lot of these uh, institutions. Yeah, I mean, what on, on this making things more complex? I, I loved your 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 comment that you know the institutions just have a few more zeros uh, at the end of it, and that you could use a very similar approach. You don't have to overcomplicate it. I mean, why? What are what are the reasons why people make it more complex? Well, I mean, th- there's this idea that when you're dealing with a lot of money, that there must be these these secret forms of of investing that that no one else can access but you. Um, there, there's definitely a lot of sort of peer-to-peer sharing in the institutional world where you're trying to, to beat your competition. And for some reason, the institutional world assumes that the degree of difficulty will add to your bottom line when, in fact, it obviously doesn't. And in most cases, it hurts your, your return. So, 
So I think there's a lot of, of trying to keep up with the Joneses, and, and people see that the, you know, the, all the Ivy League schools, the Harvards and the Yales of the world, and try to emulate them. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of an, a lot of ego involved in this space. You know, you're dealing with with a lot of money and, and wealthy donors and, and organizations that are that are well known in many cases. Um, and so I don't think that people are, are necessarily trying to do it um, for any you know particular personal gain. I think it just sort of evolved that way, and, and that's the way the space has sort of become where um, people assume when you have more money that you need to make things a little harder than they need to be. Yeah, our, our CEO at Wisdom Tree has said that the wealthy get the absolute worst advice. That they, yeah. that they, you know, they pay these hedge fund fees that are very hard to justify. Now, Nir, I know you're on the other side of some of these things, but maybe not all these things. Maybe you talk about the complex. Let's talk about hedge funds for for a moment. Um, what I mean, any, any first reactions to what Ben started off with, and just his general approach to you know the institutions making things more complex, and then, we'll, we'll, maybe the, the the hedge funds are one of the prime animals here. Well, I would generally agree with the sentiment that Ben is expressing. Um, and I actually wouldn't mind asking you, Ben, do you think, I'm sure that you've seen the data on the dispersion of returns um, among hedge fund managers, among private equity managers. In other words, the, the Yales of the world, as you mentioned, get get great returns from those from those investments, whereas, you know, the bottom decile, the bottom two deciles even, get hor- absolutely horrendous returns. I mean, would you say that if you're an institution that doesn't have access to the best managers, quote unquote, um, that you shouldn't, that hedge funds and private equity don't even belong in the uh, in the portfolio? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to that because it's 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 a really, it's very operational inefficient when you run that type of strategy. So you need to have a lot of people for due diligence and monitoring and understanding what the strategies are. Um, and like you said, that that spread between the top and bottom quartile um, investors. So I think if you get the average returns in hedge funds or private equity, I think you're doing way worse than you should be on a risk-adjusted basis or just trying to get over that hurdle rate of the fees. So in in public markets, if you get the average, you're, you're probably doing better than 75% of other investors out there. Whereas in hedge funds and private equity, if you get average or, or below average, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be doing very well at all. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's, that's part of it is those smaller and mid-sized organizations that don't have the resources that they have to kind of admit to themselves that maybe they shouldn't be playing in that sandbox in the first place. And what does that mean? What's left in the portfolio? Well, I mean, personally, I think it's never been easier for investors to access different forms of um, of market strategy these days, there, you know, there's, I don't think that there's any sort of one road to Rome, um, but but the fact that you can get so many different low-cost investments these days, um, in sort of transparent and and efficient um, structures, I, I think it's never been easier to put together. You know, a lot of the what has been sort of quote-unquote alpha in the past has now been figured out to just be really you know risk factors that people were taking. So. So, so I think that the sort of cost-efficient way to access risk factors is a is a something that a lot of organizations probably didn't have access to 10, 15, 20 years ago as much as they do today. You know, along those lines, Ben, do you are you a fan of liquid so-called liquid alternatives? In other words, buying hedge fund strategies, traditional hedge fund strategies in you know ETF mutual fund format. I think it's a space that still probably has a bit to go to sort of get to where it needs to be. I, I like the idea. Um, of it, of because I think that there are a lot of those strategies out there that can be systematized and turned into some, something of a quant strategy, and I don't think that they need to be in the hedge fund wrapper. Um, I think that um, the fees still need to come down in that space on average, um, in my opinion. But I, th- but I think we're getting there, and I think that the, there's a lot of fund providers out there who are going to figure it out. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're getting there, and I think that that. Um, that's a space where I think that these, yeah, these smaller and mid-sized organizations can hopefully find some, uh, some, some um, alternative uh, strategies to put in their portfolios. Let, let me just reintroduce our guests here, and then I'll jump into this conversation here. We've got Ben Carlson, who's the Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholt Wealth Management. We've got Nir Kesar, who's the founder of Unison Advisors, here in the studio with me. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, so interesting on this discussion of liquid low-fee alternatives. I definitely have a horse in that race um, and thinking about <laughs> things that we're creating to, to go after that index-based factor strategies, trying to hedge market risk uh, fairly, you know, um, 
I mean, I think hopefully, uh, you know, we're making strides towards a, a, a attacking that goal. I, I absolutely do believe that you can do it. Um, and I know that you guys had an interesting bet that you guys made on Twitter. Um, maybe near why don't you, you proposed the bet. Ben accepted the bet. But, my, you know, why don't we discuss that for just a few seconds? Yeah, well, let me let me give context. So um, as probably many of your listeners know, but some may not know that roughly 10 years ago, Warren Buffett made a bet with some hedge fund managers that, that uh, I, I think the bet started in 2007, that over the next 10 years, that the S&P 500 would beat hedge funds. And I believe they selected a basket of hedge funds. It was selected by the hedge fund managers. Fund of fund, I think, too. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So uh, maybe it was one one fund of funds. I, I'm not, I don't remember the specifics, but in any event, it looks, there's a year to go on that bet, and it looks almost certainly like, yeah. you know, barring some calamity for the S&P 500, the S&P 500 will easily win. Um, now, it happens uh, that in today, um, the S&P 500, again, coming back to the capes, um, but, you know, in, uh, using some sort of valuation metric where it normalizes the earnings, the U.S. looks very expensive. I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that. I, as a matter of fact, I know I'm not alone in saying that. And I believe personally that there is uh, that there's a high degree of correlation between the valuation and the expected return. And so I, I actually think that the, re- the returns from the S&P 500 over the next 10 years are not going to be great. And so I simply proposed a bet that starts on March 1 over the next 10 years that the S&P 500 will, will lose to hedge funds. Um, and Ben graciously took the other side of that bet. And so now Ben and I have a bet going. Uh, and I believe, Ben, am I right that we chose the HFRI uh, fund-weighted index as the benchmark for hedge funds? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, and so maybe I can talk a little bit about why I took the other side of that. I think, I think it'll actually be a much closer race than the one Buffett's in now. Um, but because uh, I, I I agree with you, you know we're at above average valuations, and um, I don't think that means we have to see a market crash like a lot of people tend to believe. Um, but I think it's I think it's safe after a huge bull market to to alter your expectations and assume you know lower than average returns follow above average returns. Um, but as far as the hedge fund thing goes, um, part of the problem I think facing hedge funds these days, besides all the stuff that everyone talks about, the fact that there's now, you know, $3 trillion in there and 11,000 hedge funds, and alpha is just seems to be harder to come by. I think that that stuff has been pretty well drawn out. But I think something that people forget is that hedge funds are really a cash-plus asset structure. And so, really, when you're going long and short, um, in the past, you were able to park that the, some of those short dollars that you, that you received after your short securities into uh, a money market vehicle and or something safe like a treasury um, and earn four or five six maybe seven percent and sort of tack that on to your to your returns and with interest rates at you know zero percent on the fed or one percent even two percent um, that sort of cash part of the equation is much smaller than it needed to be so it's possible that in a rising rate environment that'll actually help hedge funds um, but, but i think that there's some hedge headwinds to them as well um, in terms of, of the interest rate cycle and, and where we are there. Um, so, so, so I think hedge funds, not only that, but they have their you know, typical costs that are also a hurdle. So, so, so I think it'll be much closer, but I, I still think that the built-in hurdles of that strategy from an average perspective, like I said, on an average basis, uh, I think hedge funds have a, have a tough time um, outperforming on an, when you take the collective whole of all of them. So the, the, so the 2 and 20 fee drag, I do think, puts the favor in, in Ben. Um, now, let me add another wrinkle to this bet to, to see if, if this would change either of you guys. So you know, we have a long short index. It's not you know a fund weighted with a 2 and 20, but it's a factor model on, on equities um, and then has a dynamic hedge. This has no fees attached to it, right? So it's just an index. So if, if, we, if you benchmark versus the S&P 500 versus this long short index, um, what would that change the calculus, Ben? If you take out the two percent fees that you have to pay plus the twenty percent of profits, if I made it more like a hedged index, would that uh, would that would you would you would you change the bet? Yeah, I th- I think that that would be more interesting because I think that that is part of the problem with hedge funds is just that huge hurdle rate up front. Um, so, so I think taking the the cost out of it, I mean that's you're talking about three to four percent a year depending on what the profits are. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that that's, that would make things a little more interesting. I think tougher call for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I certainly think that something like a, a more dynamic strategy could could potentially do better over the next decade if if S and P five hundred has some pretty low returns, which it would make sense that it would. It depends if you get those dynamic hedges correct, which is obviously still an unproven new mm-hmm. strategy, so it's it's hard to say today. But um, no, it's interesting. Um, 
what um where else on 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 the book would would we want to talk about i i think there's a number of interesting parts of it that um that that i thought could be could go interesting discussion um one of the things you talked about is in in the institutional world especially there's a lot of committee oriented group decisions and there's a lot of people talking about just the problems in decision making um now we have you know near who's who's doesn't have a big group committee he has to, to focus on um but maybe talk about what you think the, the group bias in institutional setting gives a problem and how you try to overcome that yeah it's tough because you know, if you're dealing with just, if you're a financial advisor, um, you're just really dealing with maybe a couple when you have a client. But when you're dealing with an institution, especially maybe a larger one, you're dealing with an investment committee that could be five or six people. You're dealing with a board. Um, you're also dealing with the beneficiaries and maybe even the whoever the donors are. So there's a lot of people to please. And so that's why I think, you know, career risk is such a such an issue in this space. Um, and that's actually one of the, the other reasons I think that something like hedge funds have had such a tough time. It's not necessarily the, the managers themselves, um, but a lot of times their clients have, have made it more difficult on them and more short-term oriented, which has, I think, hurt their returns. So, so when you're in this sort of group setting, you're really you're managing you know, a lot of different personalities and egos, and so it can be tough to come to a consensus about what to do. Um, so, so it's really difficult for, for these organizations sometimes to, to have a lot of continuity in the way that they make their decisions. So I, I like to think about it that, that you know, a lot of simple things in terms of policy can help. Um, I think documenting your investment policy is, is huge, so something like an investment policy statement. Um, again, this is, these are policy things that would seem to be common sense that, that a lot of organizations that I've run into don't really even do or use. They, a lot of them might have one but never look at it, or they just don't have one in place at all. So I think if you can have a, an overarching philosophy and have it documented, that way when you have some turnover in, in the ranks, which, which a lot of these places do the I talk about in the book how the, the average um, tenure for uh, uh, an investment committee member is something like three to five years. So there's always a lot of new blood coming in, and these, these people all have different ideas about how the portfolios should be run. So, so I think if you can really get things on paper uh, and have everyone on the same page in terms of philosophy, that, that helps a lot. I like some of the stuff you talked about, the committee problems, like group decisions when people, judges were working alone, um, you know, 30% of the time they would take an extreme action, but in groups, 65% of the time they would take extreme actions. Um, you know, you talked about doing during protests, people would do things they wouldn't do on their own. Now, Nir, you have the sort of opposite problem. You don't have a big committee you're dealing with. You're sort of setting policy, in some ways dictating policy. How do you think about as a small, you know, now you manage a lot of assets, but maybe as a, you know, more of a sole proprietor in a way. I mean, how would how do you pull in resources to to supplement your dic- dictatorship? Well, I sort of yeah, I sort of live with both sides of that problem. If and and the benefits and the costs of those things, right? And as a as a uh, in my in sort of my own professional work, um, I'm effectively a solo practitioner, so I don't have to worry about an investment committee, so to speak, um, which I think does make management of assets a lot easier, to Ben's point. On the other hand, the vast majority of my clients are institutional, and so I often come across the problems that Ben is describing. Um, and um, and the, the, the way, there is no magic bullet, obviously, um, but the way that I often advise institutions to think about it is to see if there's a way to have different views about investing live simultaneously in a single portfolio. And I think oftentimes there are. And this goes again back to the discussion we had earlier about multi-strategy. I mean, it's inevitable that when you have a lot of people at a table, you're going to have a lot of investment philosophies. It doesn't mean that they're irreconcilable. Um, even though a lot of times when we talk about investment strategies, we, we talk about them as if they're irreconcilable. I think very few investment strategies are. And as a matter of fact, I think many of them can live quite nicely together as diversifiers. So, yeah. oh, sorry, Ben. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and I think that from your perspective as an asset manager, I think one of the things that that the asset management firms can do, um, which in my time in the institutional world I haven't seen a lot of it, but the ones that do do this really well, I think can can earn their keep is is really work hard on educating those institutional clients because um, people assume because there's so much money in that space that all the board members and committee members are are you know they know what they're doing with in terms of portfolio management goes, but there's very few people that have experience in portfolio management that are overseeing these organizations. So, so I think if you're able to educate your clients and help set reasonable expectations and really help guide them through the different cycles of the market, I think that you can, you know, you can really, you know, have, gain some long-term clients in that space because 
um, they, they really need the help in that, in that sort of thing. Well, which is no small task, as you know, Ben, because right. part of the problem is they've been poisoned if I may be yeah. so bold, with decades of garbage, right? I mean, you know, just marketing material and nonsense. And, and uh, you know, you're an evidence-based uh, investor, as I am, and, um, and it's, it's a lot of work to bring the evidence in and say, hey, look, everything that you've been told for the last 30 years is actually not true or it's questionable. And so yeah. now we need to have a discussion around what the data actually tells us. Um, and that's, that's a big part of what I do. So, so Ben, and one of the things that, that Near, we have about four minutes left in the program, Near favors a little bit more of a dynamic allocation approach where he's looking at things like value and momentum to determine asset allocation parts of the portfolio. How does how do you, when you start working with a new institutional client, maybe sort of talk a little bit, how are you thinking about building portfolios for people or where, where does Ritholtz and, and your side of institutional asset management try to focus people on? Yeah, see, we, we, we can agree on that. Um, I think it really depends on the organization and what their sort of willingness is to take on risk. But um, we see definitely uh, some value in sort of balancing out that sort of value and momentum side, too. So, so we actually have a, a strategy that we've built in-house where we um, will get a little more tactical. And, and we look at it as not something that can help investors beat the market, quote-unquote. Um, we think if, if you can beat the market, that's great. But we think it's more of a, of a volatility reducer and maybe – um, work to minimize some drawdowns, but also we think the behavioral aspects of investing are important. So, so we think that if if something that's a little more tactical can can help people behave and stick with the rest of their portfolio, we think it's sort of worth its weight in gold. So, um, especially when there's severe market disruptions like we had in the 07-09 period, um, if you can help people make it through something like that, I think that's that's where something like that can can help. But you have to to really set expectations up front and communicate with people so they know exactly how it works and, and when something happens, whether it's sort of, you know, out of the range of possibilities. And, and so, so I think you have to really set legitimate expectations up front about what something can can't do. But I think that um, sort of balance, balancing out more of a, a value and momentum strategy is, is good because, it, you know, it's, it's a way to diversify by strategy, not just asset class. Yeah, I, mean, I liked what you said also in the book about trying to make fewer decisions under stressful situations. When you get these market panics, you tend to, to overthink it a lot of times uh, and, and setting up front like what your strategy is going to be during big market downturns, having a system rules-based approach, try to over, not over be succumb to your emotions at those stress points. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Even even a bad plan is better than no plan. So a lot of places just don't have a plan at all going into something like that. So ha- knowing what you'll do ahead of time is, is huge. David Booth likes to say that the importance of an investment philosophy is having one. Yeah. And, and, right. and that is having just one. And to your point, Ben, that's, that's about right. So we're down to our final few few minutes. Um, ben, so you, you wrote this new book, Organizational Alpha, just another plug for, for Ben's book. Um, any other final closing thoughts from, from you, Ben? Yeah. No, I, I just, the whole Part of the book to me is, is not as much about the, the nuts and bolts of investing as it is about uh, making better decisions, and that's kind of um, the way that I view the world that I, I found is, is most important is, is figuring out uh, you know figuring out what works for you and try to figure out a decision-making process that uh, you can stick with. Very good. And Nir, thanks for coming down uh, or coming up to, from, from D.C. To, to Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us in the studio. It's been a pleasure. Any, any closing thoughts, uh, anything that we haven't covered here? Final 20 seconds. My last thought is I was hoping Ben would be more disagreeable. So we'll have to find we'll have to find things to disagree about Ben. Well, at least you guys have a bet. I don't know if I got Ben to take my to take my index on on the hedge fund bet. What do you think, Ben? <laughs> Final seconds. All right, you got it, Jeremy. I'm I'm good with you. All right, too. We'll get we'll get a beer on that bet as well. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 111. Uh, thank you again to to Ben Carlson, near Kesar. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall and Daniel Bruner, sound engineer. You can listen to us on the Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.